Well, good morning, church. It's fitting that I greet you in that way because we will be talking about the church this morning. Uh, we are continuing our study that we have been following uh, called What's, What Matters, the Priorities of the Church. Shane, a few weeks ago, took us through the first part of our series in discussing the gospel matters, focusing on the priority of preserving the true gospel that we see in Galatians 1. And then last week, Joel took us through leadership matters and uh, walked us through Titus 1 and discussed the priority of leadership in the church. Leadership that is sound in character and strives to support and defend the truth. In a moment, I'll have you turn with me to Ephesians 4 to address the priorities of the church. But before we do that, I want to talk about the church and understanding it is important to know that we're not referring to certain misconceptions, such as the church is not a physical building, it's not a certain denomination or a concept of the kingdom of God or even the nation of Israel. But when we talk about the church, we're talking about God's people in this present age. We translate the word church from the Greek word ekklesia. This is a compound word that consists of the, ver- the verb kaleo, which means to call, And the proposition, ek, meaning from or out from, thus the word literally means the called out ones or those who are called out. Outside the New Testament, ecclesia was used to refer to an assembly or gathering and was used in a political and in most times a non-religious sense. It did not necessarily refer to the people, but the meeting or the gathering itself. However, the term has a significant presence in the New Testament being used 107 times, three times in the Gospels, 23 times in the book of Acts, and 81 times in the Epistles and the book of Revelation. And in almost all uses, the word refers to God's people. In some cases, in a universal sense, in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, clearly speaking of the church universally. But for the most part, it is referring to the local church, the expression of the gathering of God's people in a given location. The English word for church, to best describe ecclesia as used in the New Testament, came from a Scottish word, kirk, which is from the Greek word kuriakon, which means belonging to the Lord, which again has its emphasis on God's people. So as we observe the development of this term ecclesia and as it is used in reference to the church, there's an assumption that God's people would gather or come together. But the dynamic of church life goes beyond just getting together, just gathering. It extends to the reasons why we come together, why we gather. For example, in Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, we see the people of God cannot accomplish their responsibilities that we have among one another unless we get together. Uh, In verse 24, it says, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. We gather for a reason. We come together with a purpose. But if you look at the progressive culture around us, it is evident that many are dissatisfied with the church today, and many are choosing, especially professing believers, to stay away from the church or are gravitating to some other semblance of the church where there is no proper view of God and His Word and, of course, the Gospel. Well, whatever reason people do not attend or commit to the local church, 
whether it is because of a bad experience growing up or being raised under legalistic fundamental parents or just the need to be free and to pursue relevance in their life. The concern that we should have is that those professing believers who identify with Christ, who are dissatisfied with the church and fail to make it a central part of their life, may lack genuine faith and the spirit-filled character that compels us to love the church. Certainly it is understood that church attendance and membership are not prerequisites for salvation. But as we look at the biblical expressions of the church and its purpose, we are compared by the work of the gospel or compelled by the work of the gospel to love Christ, to love his word and the truth, to love God and to love his people, the church. On that, I think it is important to note the importance of understanding what the real church is when we consider our commitment to the church. A key distinction is uh, what we might all what we might call the visible church versus the invisible church. The visible church would be any professing believer, those who outwardly profess faith in Christ. The invisible church would be all genuine believers, those who inwardly express their faith in Christ. These are the ones who make up the true church. Of course, we know that that those who express a genuine faith are certainly compelled to and obligated to profess Christ outwardly before men. Uh, And we also know that those who outwardly profess Christ certainly could possess a genuine inward faith. However, there are many leaders today that express concern about the dangers of false profession uh, of faith, even in the church let alone outside the church. John MacArthur has said that the reality is there will be people one day who stand before the Lord, many of them, who will assume that they are about to enter heaven only to be told they're on their way to hell. This is the worst possible illusion that someone can have. To be mistaken about your eternal destiny, to be mistaken about your salvation. Of course, we see this right in Matthew Chapter 7, verse 21 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who professes Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does my will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles, excuse me. And then he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It is a a frightening scenario to consider, but one that many find themselves. These were religious men. I think men who were convinced that they were uh, right in the eyes of the Lord. They gave an outward profession of their faith, but clearly lacked the inward expression of genuine faith. They were not the true circumcision. Uh, look at Philippians 3, 3. Uh, in verse 3, it speaks of the true circumcision versus the false circumcision. He says that the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Clearly, these men that stood before Christ boasted in themselves and their works rather than boasting in Christ, 
They put confidence in their flesh. In a meaningful way, we can say that this is one of the benefits of the church and even one of the purposes to help believers, to help us understand true faith and to have the hope and assurance of our faith uh, that is in Christ and not ourselves. To help us distinguish between genuine faith and false faith. Uh, I may ask people at times when I know that they profess faith, how do you know that you're a Christian? And many times, unfortunately, the first response is they speak of their uh, works and their efforts. That I do this and I have done this. When we are called to put no confidence, these things may be evidence of our faith, but they are not things we place our assurance in. Our only hope is in Christ. And unfortunately, this is not the prevailing attitude of the modern church today. The goal of the modern ministry today is to accept, to accommodate, and to give assurance to all who come, the unchurched, the religious, and even the faithful who may be immature in their faith, unable to discern these erroneous attitudes. These churches believe that it is better to allow individuals and families to be exposed to the positive platitudes and affirmations of the Christian life and an erroneous concept of what it means to be a Christian that is influenced more by the culture and what's relevant and trendy in the day, rather than being exposed to the Word of God and the transforming truth and power of the gospel. Their predominant message is that you are special and that God, in His love, accepts you for who you are. And any other message contrary to this is intolerant and insensitive to those in the culture. The reality that they refuse to accept and are blinded to is that God cannot accept us for who we are. We're sinners, right? Uh, As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, that if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If Christ could accept us or God could accept us for who we are, then Christ's sacrifice was for nothing and in vain. But we see in Romans 5.8 what true love is, uh, what the grace that is revealed behind the gospel. He says in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So he gives us his life so that we can be acceptable to him. Well, before we move into the text in Ephesians 4, Uh, and ask the question, does the church matter? I think it's important to first ask the question, does the church matter to God? In Matthew 16, 18, we see the church was founded and is being built by Jesus Christ. He said, on this rock, I will build my church. In Acts 20, 28, we see that the church was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ's work of redemption, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, to the right hand of the Father were all necessary to establish this church. In Colossians 1.18, we see that the church is under the authority of Christ, our, our Lord. He is the head of the church, it says, the body of Christ. And we will see this in a moment in Ephesians 4.15. The church next is the pillar and support of the truth in 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is the primary means by which God receives glory unto himself in this present age. Ephesians 3.21 says, To him 
Be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And last, the church is the divinely ordained instrument for bringing the gospel to the nations of the world. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We also see many allusions or descriptions of the church designated uh, in the Bible where the church is referred to as the people of God, a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, the body of Christ. One of my uh, most impactful images that uh, has great implications for me is when we are considered the bride of Christ. Uh, That metaphor uh, speaks very clearly in that Christ, when it speaks of Christ's love for the church, he equates it to the love of a bride. His jealousy for his bride's devotion, he desires our affection towards the groom and the future union with his bride when the church is one day presented to him blameless and, and perfect. So the question is again, does the church matter to God? And I think clearly we see that it does. And as I look at this, I, to me, a better question to ask is, who are we to deserve this grace? The church. So we need to ask each other, does the church matter to you? Does it matter to us? Is it a vital part of your life? Well, as we turn to the book of Ephesians, we will see that the church mattered as well to Paul. After having established this church during one of his journeys, Paul spent three years in Ephesus teaching and strengthening the church because it had fallen prey to weak leadership and to false teaching. And then he later wrote the letter to Ephesians while imprisoned in Rome to once again encourage them in the same way. And as the church continued to struggle, it faced many challenges from strife and disunity within He then later sent Timothy, a young pastor at the time, to try and settle the issues and establish firm leadership in the church. And we even see some years later that the church was rebuked by Christ himself in his revelation to John the Apostle because they had lost their first love that we see in Revelation 2.1. So in the letter uh, from Paul that we see, he was compelled to once again strengthen their faith by affirming them in their doctrine and guiding them in the practical way of living. Uh, We see in the first three chapters, of course, that we have some of the richest spiritual realities presented that are foundational to the Christian faith. For the most part, it is where we get the famous solas of Scripture that began the efforts of the Reformation uh, back with Martin Luther. Uh, By faith alone, by grace alone, we see in Ephesians 2, 8, for by Uh, Grace, we've been saved through faith and not by works, through Christ alone and glory to God alone. Paul desired to admonish and encourage the believers in Ephesus to consider these blessings that they had in Christ, not only to be thankful for them, but in response, walk or live in a manner worthy of these truths and realities. We have to respond to the implications of these realities. It is impossible to live the Christian life without knowing the truth of the life that we have in Christ. And if for any reason at all, this is why we need the church. This is why we need one another, to stir one another, to live a worthy life that honors Christ and pleases the Father. Uh, We also see that Paul presents a new concept, a new idea of doctrine 
in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 that he specifically refers to as a mystery, which he presents in chapters 3, 3 through 10. If you're there, read with me. Ephesians 3, verse 3 through 10. He says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Uh, Of course, this was for some Jews in the church unacceptable. And then for the most part, for the Gentiles, it was really unexpected. He goes on to say in verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which, uh, which for ages had been hidden in God who who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And we see now that the church in this letter matters to Paul. And Paul's desire in explaining this truth, that is the doctrine of the church, enables us to think and perceive things more clearly about the church so that we can respond uh, in an appropriate way, understanding more clearly God's ways and will For the life of the church. There is no other way to understand this except to recognize that the church is a grace provided for God's glory and for our good. Uh, So let's look at Ephesians 4 uh, verses 1 through 16. And what we will see is that in order to experience the blessings of our faith in Christ and to bring God the glory which he is due, we must have unity of faith in the church. Uh, Let's read uh, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? For he descended, for he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure and the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. 
But speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now you may be concerned, how am I going to walk us through this passage and be out in time? And no, this is not a two-part message, but uh, we cannot exhaust everything that can be discovered in this, but I have highlighted five specific points in this. First being uh, needing to understand uh, what it means to walk in a manner worthy. In light of the realities, as we've talked about, Paul has written previously uh, this foundational truth he calls the church to, and in response, we walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. This, of course, would be in contrast to what he later writes in verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Or in verse 14, where we're to no longer think and behave as children, alluding to the immaturity of certain Christians and certain believers. As Christians, we are to live a life that is in response to all that Christ has done. In the same way we see in Romans 12, 1, in response to all the doctrine Paul laid out in the first part of Romans, therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God, present yourselves a living sacrifice. In the same way, he is calling us to walk in a manner worthy because of these truths laid out, a life that is pleasing to him or as unto him. Second Corinthians 5, 9 says that therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. It's about how we respond to these truths. And the walk required is demonstrated by these five uh, elements of unity in the faith of the faith in the church. First, we see Uh, In verses 1 through 3, unity in diligence. Unity in diligence. The church body is the sum of its parts, and it requires that each of us respond in a worthy manner, diligent in our desire for unity. Verse 3 says that we are to keep the unity in the bond of peace. We are united positionally and spiritually in the bond of Christ together, but we must allow this spiritual reality and its implications to be lived out. If we are united in Christ, we must be unified in the body. So it is only fitting that we pursue this unity with all diligence and eagerness. This diligence, Paul speaks of, is an earnest, tireless effort that could be described as a painstaking effort. That gives me the remembrance of the idea of taking up our cross, willing to sacrifice ourselves. In Philippians 2, uh, we see Paul lay this out in uh, the first uh, eight verses where he speaks of the same mindset to strive for unity through the same humility as that of Christ. He says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God uh, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a man, a servant, submitting himself to death, even death on the cross. We are called to empty ourselves. Uh, the very call of Christ to the gospel in Luke nine twenty three says, if any man should come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This is a worthy response to the gospel that is necessary for the unity of the church. Humility is foundational to the Christian life. Uh, as you read through uh, the rest of the book of Ephesians, we see that this life of the Christian demonstrated in ways of submission, submission to one another in marriage, submission uh, as children to parents, uh, submission as in slaves to masters, employees to employers, submission to the government. The Christian life is not about independence and, and being on our own. It is about being dependent on Christ and on one another. And in this, we need to be humble. Uh, in our humility, we see ourselves rightly. We recognize that we are nothing at all, that anything that we have, we have received by the grace of God. And when we see that, our view of God changes. Our view of our life and circumstance change. Our view of others changes, especially our view of those in the church will change. This will then produce, as Paul speaks, a gentleness of the Spirit, uh, one that is under control, one that is not provoked by the issues and, and the, the challenges and adversity that we face, and one that doesn't provoke others to stumble. We respond in patience towards others, preferring others above ourselves. And my favorite, bearing with one another in love, obviously hoping that they can bear with us in the same way. I sometimes ask myself, that if God were to extend to me the same amount of mercy that I often extend to others, then I would be without hope. Uh, And especially as I come before him, that our response in showing mercy to others has to be equal to the mercy that we have received. Christ speaks of this in the Beatitudes, that blessed are uh, the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Look, we need to understand that in the church, we will often offend one another, but we must strive to keep the peace. We must be quick to confess and always ready to forgive. Romans twelve eighteen says that as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So as we think on those things, what about you? Do you love the church and the people in the church in the way that you diligently strive for unity with all humility, gentleness? Do you put up with others in love for the sake of unity in the church? I pray that we all would be eager to do so. Next, we'll look at in verses four through six, unity and doctrine. Uh, As we uh, read through the passage, it's been said, or we see uh, this unveiling of this unity of doctrine that is referred to as uh, uh, in the reference of one faith, one Father, one Lord, uh, speaking to uh, the exclusivity of the truth. Uh, But we hear many times in our culture that doctrine divides. Doctrine is not important. It is not a priority in the church. Uh, What we see in this letter uh, that Paul seems to feel differently 
he felt that it was critical for the health of the church to reaffirm the theology and the doctrinal truths that shape our spiritual realities. Because in them, we are strengthened. In them, we are unified. And it is by these truths that we are sanctified, that we grow in Christ and maturity needed in the life of the church. In verses 4 through 6, we see the unity of this doctrine is centered around the Godhead. Paul brings our attention once again to the Trinitarian relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that he presented in chapter 1. Uh, If you look back in that passage, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, he refers, the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing according to his wisdom and elective purposes. In verses 7 through 12, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, which brings us the blessings of forgiveness and reconciliation to the Father. And in verse 13 and 14, it is the Spirit that seals us as a guarantee until the fullness of our redemption. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in relationship fulfilling the work of redemption in our lives. So Paul brings that back uh, to our hearts and minds. In chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope, of your calling. The Spirit unites us in the body, that is the church, for the hope and assurance of our faith. Verse 5, we see one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And here we identify with Christ our Lord through our common profession of faith in Him and express through baptism as a symbolizing uh, symbol in our life uh, in response to the new covenant. And in verse 6, We see one God and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Our God and Father rules sovereignly over all and accomplishes the purposes of his will in regards to redemption and in regards to the church. And Paul emphasizes again this unity that I mentioned by referencing each of these truths as one because we agree together and we are unified in these truths. Uh, and, and it is vital that these doctrines be foundational to our unity. And then in verse 7 through 10, we see next our unity through diversity. Unity through diversity. We see a transition that sets up a contrast from the unity we share collectively to the reality that we are all different. We're unified in our response to Christ, we're unified in our doctrine. But the reality is we are all different. In fact, outside of Christ, the only thing that we have truly in common with one another is what? We're all sinners. Romans 3, 23, uh, 22, 23 says that there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in verse 7, Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, This conjunction, but here, could also be read as in spite of, referring back to our eagerness to be unified, recognizing our doctrinal oneness. In spite of what unites us, we still need the provision of God's grace provided through the gifts of Christ to find unity. And when Paul refers to each one, uh, it is important to note that he is referencing the individual 
rather than the collective group as he has done throughout this letter, uh, bringing a distinction to the challenges we may face because of the differences that we have, whether it be in preference or in tendencies, we must strive for unity even among our diversity. But this emphasizes the diversity among those in the body, which highlights the supernatural work of the Spirit to utilize the uniqueness that each of us have by gifting according to the grace provided. But the uniqueness, it's important to understand, is not that we, uh, is, uh, that we all have is not to be celebrated. Uh, in, in, culture, in the culture of day and life today, our individuality is emphasized, it's celebrated. Our uniqueness is highlighted in society. But in the church, our desire is to humble ourselves and to be one. So we don't celebrate this uh, uniqueness. And in no way does it, the verse mean that we are special in any way. But we celebrate Christ. We boast in him because of this work of grace through the gospel, which unites us. And then we see in verses 8 through 10, it speaks of Christ after having conquered death ascended above the heavens and now gives his own spoils of the victory, the gifts to men, Paul says, that he quotes. And one of these gifts we see in John sixteen seven, I believe, is first the promise of the Holy Spirit, our helper, who gifts us with the various gifts for the body of Christ and for the sake of unity. 1 Corinthians twelve seven says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And in the same chapter in verse 11, it says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. All true believers in the church have received this gift from the Lord. There is not one Christian who does not have the ability to serve and be a blessing to others in the body. And the purpose of these gifts is to serve the common good for the health of the body. So that even through our diversity, we are united by our gifts for the common good. And next, we see uh, that we must have unity through discipleship. We are all called to be disciples of Christ. And we are all called to make disciples. And this is accomplished through no other means but through the church. And the Lord has gifted men to equip and train for this work of ministry. Uh, Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, or the ministry of the word, to the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, True believers will grow in their faith, and will hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we see these men who are gifted, and clearly the, the first three that are referenced are gifts that we would see have ceased either complete, completely or in some way. Of course, apostles and prophets, uh, uh, the service of ministry has ceased. Uh, even uh, those who served as evangelists in the day were seen more as church planters. So we might equate that today as maybe Uh, missionaries on the field or those who are out planting churches uh, even in North America. Uh, But certainly we understand that we're all called to the ministry of reconciliation. So in a way are all 
evangelists, but this is a specific gifting in the first century church. But what we see is uh, useful and true today is there are those who are gifted as pastors, and it says, and teachers, but that really is one office. It's really better translated as pastors who uh, also teach, who in particular teach. Uh, it is the one and the same, pastor and teacher. Those uh, who are gifted to teach in the church are called to equip the saints for the work of service in the ministry in hopes and in order to bring unity in the body. But as I said, we know that the Christian will grow. Uh, he will hunger for thirst and righteousness. Paul uh, expresses in Philippians 1 verse 6 this reality that he being God who began this work in you, of course, this work of salvation will complete it until the day of the Lord. He will perfect us. It's the sanctifying work of redemption that one day we will be uh, made perfect in Christ before Christ. And we are growing in a progressive way towards that because we are true believers, because God has determined it. So, uh, and what God begins, we have to believe and know that he always finishes. He began this work of salvation and he will complete it. And the grace he has provided for this work, again, is the church and, and being equipped. Colossians 1.28 says that we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Our desire here at Faith Community Church, along with Paul, is to do this under the power that works mightily in each of us, knowing we have all things sufficient through the spirit and the word of truth to equip and to strengthen the man to maturity in Christ. Discipleship is the responsibility of the church, and everyone is to be involved in the process. The teachers and pastors of the church are to equip the saints, and the saints are to do the work of the ministry or uh, follow the call of the ministry of the word. The pastors cannot do all the work of the ministry. Uh, one of my favorite passages in regards to this is Romans fifteen fourteen, where Paul says, I am confident, speaking to the church in Rome, that you are full of goodness and knowledge and are able to admonish one another. That goodness being the work of redemption, the righteousness of Christ, and the knowledge being the spirit-filled believer and the word of truth gives us the ability to uh, encourage, to uh, admonish, to counsel, to minister to those in the body of Christ. Oftentimes, when you may have someone who reveals a hardship or a challenge they're facing, and you may seem intimidated that you really don't have an answer for them, your first thought may be, well, we need to get them in touch with the pastor. They need to call Shane. I need to let Joel know. Um, well, we desire to serve in this way. We love seeing God's word being used and applied in the midst of struggles in the context of life. We have the promise that God will perfect us through these things. But yet you are called to participate in this work. 
And it is the duty of the church, the responsibility of the church, the grace of the church to equip you for such a task. And even in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, if you are to appreciate those who serve diligently among you, uh, your elders, your pastors, and esteem them highly, then live in peace with one another. Be unified with one another. There's nothing that grieves leadership more than when there is disunity and strife in the church. It is overwhelming. But we, Paul then calls us to, and says, you admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. This is what we desire to see as body life. And you are to pursue the equipping. You are called to be a disciple. But then we also see a pattern of this in 2 Timothy 2, 2, that we're not only to teach men, but we're to teach faithful men. Uh, It's not enough just to speak to groups and crowds and hope that God's word transforms lives. We are to pursue faithful men who are desiring to grow, who apply God's word, who who uh, approach their problems in life uh, with biblical wisdom and then are then faithful to turn around and to teach others who are also faithful. This is the pattern of discipleship in the church and it's one that we uh, are continuing to grow in, one we desire to to develop. Uh, If you're not participating in the discipleship ministries of this church, it begins with regular attendance. It begins with adult Bible study. It begins with small groups. It begins with studies in the fundamentals of the faith. It begins with smaller groups. It it begins with going to our counseling training and so forth. We desire to equip the body. And we uh, are trusting the Lord in this grace through the life of the church. It is what we need to strive for unity and peace in the body of Christ. Uh, Again, Uh, I got ahead of myself there. The process requires, of course, biblical teaching that is applied to life circumstances and problems and to understand how to solve them biblically. Uh, In verse 14 of uh, Ephesians chapter 4, it says that the disciple will grow in discernment so that we will no longer be children uh, who are Uh, disturbed by false doctrine and the schemes of men. We will have the discernment to recognize uh, and call out unsound teaching or false doctrine. In verse 15, essentially it is saying where it says, rather uh, we speak the truth in love. And I think it's better understood to, to say that on the contrary, as opposed to these false teachers who do nothing out of love, who, because of their teaching and because of their uh, influence, demonstrate that there is no love for the body. But on the contrary, we rather speak the truth in love. And in that, we uh, know that we will be strengthened and edified because uh, we know that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And that leads us to our final truth uh, that we are to have unity under the divine. Uh, in verse 15, second half of verse 15 verse, and 16, it says that we are to grow up in all aspects 
into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It's really simple. There is no life in the church without Christ. He is the head. Colossians 1, 17 and 18 says that, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. If the head of a man is removed from his body, the body dies. If Christ is not the head of the church, the church will suffer and die. And this really could explain what is happening in our churches today, that Christ is not the head. The church is not held together by the strong preaching or leadership or even a strong uh, group of leaders, that it cannot even be held together by the collective body in the church. From the head comes all wisdom and truth and the control to grow the church, and it's in the unity of the faith, and it's Christ as our head. So we must therefore commit to the unity uh, in the church, of course, with all diligence, uh, with unity and doctrine, unity through our diversity, committed to uh, the discipleship of the church, being a disciple and discipling others and under the divine authority of Christ because the church matters. Uh, It's not difficult to express what this church has meant. Uh, I often say that we are not the perfect church, but it is the perfect church to me. Uh, Again, I have to revisit Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 that says that we are to stir one another to love and good deeds that it's not enough just to attend. It's not enough to uh, simply gather and be a spectator. But you are called to come to in some way consider how to stir one another, to encourage, to challenge and and, uh, examine our lives to see that we are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, responding to these truths. Uh, and that we are to uh, love the body. Uh, and we uh, don't find it difficult to express the love that we have uh, for this church and for this body. And uh, hope that as the Lord has brought you here, whether you have been attending for a while or have been a member for a long time, I encourage you, pursue life in this body. Commit your life not just being a part or letting the church be a part of your life, but let your life be a vital part of this church. The church needs you. We need you. So I encourage you to to pray and consider how the Lord would uh, strengthen your commitment to this body in some way and by his grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful to see and recognize and understand the grace you have given us through the church, the mystery, uh, the, the glories that we see when we see that it's, we're the bride of Christ or this, the body of Christ and that Christ is our head. I pray that uh, by your wisdom 
and by your guidance that each of us will consider how we can uh, deepen our love for one another, that we can uh, pursue one another to, uh, in every way, show hospitality to one another. And I pray that as leaders in this church that we would exemplify this, demonstrate this in our love, and that we would continue to endeavor to equip and to build up the body, and that each of us would diligently pursue unity in the gifts that's been given us by your grace for the purpose of unity in the church. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.